0: In the 1740s, the first Great Awakening was already sweeping through New England, where many in colonial America were being saved. There was one church in Enfield, Connecticut, that remained largely unaffected by the Great Awakening. So their pastor decided to invite the Reverend Jonathan Edwards to come and preach to their congregation. The congregation was rather unmoved by the things of the Lord, so Edwards sought to move them. And how is he going to do this? by instructing them and warning them of the horrors of hell, in a sermon titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. is a now famous sermon from July 8th, 1741. Edwards preached that, quote, of an angry God, there is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell, but the mere pleasure of God, end quote. It's like Psalm 73 says of the wicked, verse 18, Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. At any moment, the foot of the wicked may slip. Their shaky foundation will crumble away and they will sink into the pit of hell without any notice. And the only reason the wicked have not yet perished is simply God's patience and God's forbearance. But do not not be lulled into a sense of security, for this patience will end for the wicked at any moment. The wicked must also not be deceived into thinking they will escape this fate, for as Edwards argued, they're already under the just condemnation to hell. Man likes to flatter himself, thinking God would never sentence him to such a fate, thinking him too good for such a thing. But before God's divine justice, there are none good, There are none righteous, not even one. All are wicked, all have gone astray, all are cast aside. Divine justice has already found them guilty and sentenced them to hell. The wicked should not for a moment feel safe from God's wrath simply because it has not yet come upon them. Rather, Edward says, quote, the wrath of God burns against them. Their damnation doesn't slumber. The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do now rage and glow, End quote. And all the power and might of the wicked could no more keep them out of hell than a spider's web stop a falling rock. As you can already tell, it's a pretty intense sermon. And as Edward says, much more of the fury and intensity of God's wrath toward the wicked, which may come at any moment. The point of his sermon, though, it wasn't to condemn, but to warn and to appeal. People need to know that they're not safe. People feel safe, but in reality, they're already dangling over the pit of eternal damnation. And his point is, their foot may slip at any moment. You may be young and in perfect health, but you could. this afternoon you could die and meet God. And if you are without a sacrifice, without a substitute, without Christ, you will meet only an angry God. This message then is designed to warn you of this great danger that you might turn and repent and flee to Christ, run to Christ. He's your only hope of redemption. In him you can be saved. Well, if you've never read Edward's sermon, I would encourage you to do so. It's actually more shocking of a sermon today because we don't hear preaching like that anymore. Many preachers long ago, they gave up talking about sin and condemnation and God's wrath and a fiery hell. That makes people very uncomfortable. It's judgmental. It's presumptuous. It's depressing. It's unpopular. If you preach like that, no one's going to come to your church. So they say. But I hope you see how much is lost when such preaching is lost. Edwards, in that sermon, he's merely just quoting the Bible. I mean, all throughout, he's just teaching what the Bible says, and that is what Scripture teaches, that the wicked are under God's just condemnation. Yet preachers today take great pains to avoid the subject of God's wrath. But that means they're avoiding just a significant portion of, of God's word, and that's that's a problem. The message of God's impending wrath, it is hard to give and it's hard to receive. It's not a pleasant thing. So many, they just delete the negative side of the gospel the bad news you know the message of wrath that's coming if you don't repent they take that out and they simply leave the positive side of the gospel which is the offer of heaven and eternal life and that is good but even the positive message of the gospel these days it gets reduced into this God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and, and that that sounds nice but if that's your only message if that's all you have to say do you see that the problem with that You're left with no reply when the person says back to you, okay, that's nice, but my life is great right now. I mean, I'm living in sin, I'm doing whatever I want, and I already have a wonderful life, so why should I leave all that to turn to your Jesus? I'm already doing pretty good. What can you say? See, the problem with such people is they don't realize that they're in danger. They think they're safe when in reality their foot may slip at any moment. But if you eliminate the warning of of judgment from the good news, you lose the urgency and the desperation and so much more in the gospel message. It's no coincidence that along with dropping God's wrath, many churches have dropped hell altogether. And God is so loving, you can never do something like that, right? And the idea of an eternal punishment for the wicked, that's offensive to a God who is love. It doesn't matter that this is what the Bible clearly teaches. We've got to redefine, reinterpret the Bible in modern terms. Accordingly, some have so strongly reacted to the idea of God's wrath that they've redefined the atonement itself. After all, if we're trying to take the wrath of God out of the discussion because it's so offensive, we've got to do something with the whole message of Jesus dying on a cross We have to find another reason that Jesus died on the cross. Because the whole message of he died to bear our sins as a substitute sacrifice, bearing the wrath of God, that's not going to do anymore. So the view, that view has been likened to cosmic child abuse. Seriously, that's what some have said. Instead, the atonement is redefined to Jesus. Just give an example of love and sacrifice and peace. But the result of such teaching is that many who subscribe to it are now twice as much sons of hell, like Jesus said of the Pharisees. For now, in addition to thinking that hell isn't real, they've subscribed to a false gospel which can't save them from the real hell. And so they are doubly lost. But far be it from us to ever take such a course. We we as the people of God must never abandon the true gospel. And this means we must never reduce or cheapen our Heavenly Father's wrath. Yes, it is offensive because we're all sinners and we are all under the just condemnation of his wrath. But that's what makes the good news good news. It's that because of the love of God, he gave the Son of God to bear the wrath of God that we might become the children of God. That's what the Word of God teaches And for those who believe that, isn't that the praise we'll be singing for eternity? That worthy is the Lamb who was slain and who purchased for God with his own blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And this morning as we approach Mark 15 again, we come to one verse that seems to uniquely capture the wrath of God on the cross But may we never dare to cheapen or lessen what's going on here. May we never apologize for the message of the cross. It's foolishness to the unbelieving, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And this morning, we want to behold the message of the cross once again. So open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Mark 15. Mark chapter 15. Over the course of many months now, we've studied and watched as Jesus has been betrayed, arrested, tried, convicted, mocked, scourged, led out, and crucified. Jesus hung on the cross from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. The first three hours were very eventful. As we studied, that's when he did most of his ministering and speaking, despite his great physical suffering. But things changed at high noon when this supernatural darkness fell over the whole land. During the second three hours, Jesus, he hangs there, in silence, he doesn't say anything. And we get the impression that during this time, his physical suffering took a real backseat to his spiritual suffering. And today we come to the climax of that time where Jesus cries out to God from the cross at the end of the darkness in a passage that has become hollowed ground. Today we'll be looking at Mark fifteen thirty four. But for context, let's start by reading Mark 15, 33 through 37. Mark 15, look at verse 33. It says, when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders, bystanders heard it, they began saying, behold, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Never in history has a death meant so much. This is why we've been spending weeks trying to study and explore the nature of his death, finding out what it what it means what it means for our faith today? Last time we were together, we spent all of our time exploring the nature of this darkness that comes upon the land in verse 33. Today we're moving forward, and it's time to grapple with this famous cry of Jesus from the cross in verse 34, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" It's one thing to, to know what Jesus says here. It's another to know what he means here. Clearly, something happened to him in that darkness, something serious. And we wonder, well, what was it? What led to this cry? What does this cry mean? What, what's he really saying in this cry? What What is behind this cry? And how does that relate to our faith today? Well, today we aim to find out. I must admit this this passage, it is hallowed ground. Any man is insufficient to grapple with these truths. But by God's grace, let's see what we can from this profound passage. Again, just one verse, verse 34. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out the loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's do our best to find out what this means and how it relates to us today. Of course, the immediate question we have with this verse is simply, what what does it mean? What what is he getting at here? What's the significance of this? We have to caution ourselves, though, against unwarranted speculation. You want to know, what is Jesus feeling right here? What is he experiencing? Those are very difficult questions to answer. I have a hard enough time trying to understand the feelings and experiences of my wife, let alone the God-man, just trying to understand the mind of Christ on an ordinary day is hard enough, let alone what he's going through on the cross in that moment. I mean, he's, he's not an ordinary man. He's God the Son incarnate. So this discussion, it's always going to be above us. We're like little kids. We're sitting at the grown-up table. We're trying to follow the conversation. But some of this is going to be beyond us. Now, that doesn't mean we can't know anything. We can And I think the best approach here, as always, is to simply stick with Scripture, what Scripture clearly says, and steer clear of wide speculation. Basically, what does Scripture say here and elsewhere about what Jesus experienced on the cross, which he lets out in this cry? I mean, let's just go with that. I'm fine with that. That's what God has revealed after all. Our curiosities want to take us further But we have to caution ourselves. We don't want to go too far and risk error. So let's just see what we can firmly establish from the text, from the context about what this cry means. And we'll start with this. Number one, this was a cry of faith. Number one, this was a cry of faith. Many of you know the Gospels record seven statements that Jesus gave from the cross. Ours is the fourth, the middle one. But what makes it so unique, it's the only one that comes in the form of a question. It's also pretty striking because we never really see Jesus asking non-rhetorical questions. Jesus is the man with all the answers. So so what gives? Why is he asking this as a question, Our our first question? Well, it's best to start with what can safely be eliminated. This was not a question of ignorance. And Jesus knew full well what he was doing there on that cross. We've covered that so much. He understood that he, on purpose, on the cross, was taking the cup of wrath from the Father's hands, and he was to drink it down to the last drop. So he knows what he's doing there and what this, what this entails. It's not a question of ignorance. It's also not a question of unbelief. Man... When man goes through a great trial of suffering, it doesn't take much for him to start doubting God. Maybe you have a friend and they lose a loved one or they get paralyzed in a car accident. It's not long before they start to say, God, are you real? Do you even exist? And if so, how could you let me suffer like this? Those are cries of unbelief, doubt. But Jesus knew God was sovereign over his suffering. He was still there. Notice Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was a cry of distress, but still a cry of faith. God was still his God. He still believed God was there. God was with him despite being given over to wrath. And so indeed, what we find is a cry of distress, not distrust. Jesus is offering up his lament to God. And that's what this is, a lamentation. That's an expression of grief or sorrow, often in the form of a question. You find such lamentations all over the Psalms. In fact, there's an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations, where the prophet Jeremiah lamented over the destruction of Jerusalem. And that's something God did. Jeremiah asked many questions of God, even though he knows the answers. For example, at the end of Lamentations, Jeremiah asks, Lord, why do you forsake us for so long? He knows the answer. And he knows God's going to restore. This was a a typical Jewish way of expressing their grief before God. And Jesus surely had infinitely more reasons to grieve in this moment. So he's lamenting, not out of unbelief, but in trust. And it's not wrong for you to lament when God hands you over to suffering. So long as you are still trusting God and like Jesus, you are still calling out to him as my God. So Jesus, despite his unspeakable suffering on the cross, he's actually still calling out to his God in faith. This was a cry not of unbelief, but of faith. All right, so... First, I guess we can understand Christ's cry from the cross as a lamentation. That That's good. But is this all? Is this all we have to go off here in this text? Well, no, not quite. There is more going on with this fourth cry from the cross. This was a cry of faith. Number two, this, is a, this was a cry of prophecy. This was a cry of prophecy. Let me explain. You may not have picked up on this right away, but not only is it peculiar that Jesus asks a question from the cross, it's also very peculiar that he refers to God as God on the cross. What do I mean? Well, of all the ancient Jewish writings that we have, there's not one example of any ancient Jew calling God his father in prayer. They never prayed to God and said, our father or my father There's not one example of an ancient Jew praying to God as his father. But for Jesus, he nearly exclusively refers to God as his father over or around 170 times. And Jesus referred to God as my father directly in prayer about 21 times. In fact, there is just one instance where Jesus does not refer to God as his father in prayer. And that's right here. That's that's our passage. This is the only time where he does not refer to God as his father. We expect him to say, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? But he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so we wonder, well, why is that? What is the significance of that? That has to mean something, right? Now, to start, you would be very mistaken to think that at this moment, God is no longer Christ's father. That is not the case. Jesus is still God the Son. He never stopped being God the Son. In fact, just moments later, the Roman centurion, even he notices, truly this man was or is the Son of God. But still, we ask, why of all places is this the one time where Jesus does not refer to God as his Father in in prayer and crying out? Well, would it help you to know that this verse, or in this verse, Jesus is actually quoting scripture. You probably knew that, but may not have thought about it. But this is not some random statement. When Jesus says this fourth cry from the cross, he's actually directly quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. And this fact helps explain both why he phrases this as a question and why he calls God, God and not his father. Because that's what Psalm 22, verse 1 does. Psalm 22 must be kept in mind. This is the same psalm we studied several weeks ago. It's absolutely filled with prophetic predictions of Christ and the cross. Psalm 22 basically reads like the Old Testament version of Jesus dying on the cross. It's such a stunningly accurate prophetic prediction of the Messiah's sufferings. We won't recover this because we spent nearly a whole sermon on it, but it depicts the Messiah as being rejected and mocked. He is pierced in his hands and feet. His garments are divided around him. And so much more. And so it's not surprising to learn, therefore, that when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's actually just quoting the opening verse of Psalm 22. This is no coincidence, and this fact must shade our understanding of Christ's cry. It'd be one thing if he gave a, a random, unique statement, but his words are not his own. This is a borrowed verse. So now it begs the question, okay, why is he doing that? Why is he spending one of his final breaths on the cross? And he dies just moments after this. Why is he spending one of his final verse uh, moments quoting a verse of scripture? Quoting Psalm 22, verse one. Well, it, it quickly becomes apparent that Jesus was purposely associating himself with the son of David, with the Messiah from Psalm 22 and his sufferings. Once upon a time, King David was handed over by God to a period of affliction and suffering. And David's sorrow was so great that he lamented, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those were David's words at first. But that was not a cry of distrust from David. Indeed, as the psalm goes on, David makes known his continual trust in God. And though he laments, his cry turns to triumph by the end of the psalm. For though God has indeed handed him over to affliction, David knows that God will vindicate him in the end. And all this is true for the greater David. So it's not surprising at all that Jesus quotes this verse on the cross, thereby identifying himself as the greater David. He's saying he is that one. God has likewise handed Jesus over to a period of unspeakable affliction, and so Jesus laments. Still, though, his trust in God is secure, like David, and he knows that God will vindicate him in the end. So this cry, it actually shows Jesus is ever mindful of God's prophetic plan. And this plan cannot be detached from victory. Because that's how Psalm 22 ends, that's how the cross ends, that's how God's plan ends. And though Jesus was handed over by God into divine wrath, that would not be the end. Being God the Son, he was able to fully swallow up that wrath. And though made sin, God was still his God. And though in despair, his prophetic mission was still accomplished. This is all what Jesus is signifying by crying out Psalm 22 verse 1. John's gospel confirms this understanding right after this cry on the cross, right after Jesus says this, John 19.28 says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture said, I am thirsty. So look at that. I mean, that's you look at that statement, you think it's random. Jesus says, I am thirsty from the cross. Seemingly random statement, but there are no random statements on the cross. Even his cry out of thirst was given by Jesus on purpose to fulfill scripture. In that case, Psalm 69. So look, it sounds like Jesus on the cross, he's still in control. And indeed he is. Moments later, John 19.30 says, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. See, Jesus did not die in defeat, but in victory. He didn't lose his life. It was not taken from him. He, he bowed his head and he gave it up. He gave his life for us. And his cry from the cross of being forsaken of God was given as a final proof that he is that son of David, the Messiah, given over to suffering that he might bring many sons to glory. This was a cry of faith. And this was a cry of prophecy. But we're still not quite done. All of this so far, it's good. This is good. This is true. But I don't want you to get the impression that in our verse, Jesus is merely giving some dispassionate quotation of scripture, because that's not the case. He is quoting Psalm 22 on purpose, yes, but he's also living out its significance. He is experiencing to the fullest what David only imagined. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For Jesus, this was no hollow cry. Rather, it was, number three, lastly, this was a cry of damnation. This was a cry of damnation. This obviously needs some explaining. So let's go back to the text, look at a few things. First, notice this cry comes at the very end of, of those three hours of darkness. During that time, Jesus was completely silent. In verse 34, Jesus abruptly breaks that silence with this loud cry. And already that's unexpected because usually men dying on a cross don't have the breath or the energy to make a loud cry. So this is unexpected. It's also unexpected that this cry comes from Jesus and not God. We are used to, in Mark's gospel, Seeing God the Father show up and speak from heaven at all these key moments in Christ's ministry. At the baptism of Jesus, this loud voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. At his transfiguration, another loud voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. So here on the cross, we expect again a loud voice from the Father in heaven. But there's no voice. Instead, we only hear the voice of Jesus crying out loudly in seeming abandonment. And so we wonder, where has the father gone? Where is the voice of approval from the father? And what is this business of Jesus being forsaken by God? Well, this verb for forsaken does indeed picture someone being abandoned or deserted. So we wonder, in in what sense was Jesus abandoned or deserted by God on the cross? And here again, we'll start by saying what this does not mean. This does not mean that Jesus lost his status as the son of God. Like we said before, this does not at all mean that God ceased to be Christ's father. Theologically, whatever happened on the cross, the Trinity was not dissolved on the cross. Or more technically, we can say there was no ontological separation between God the father and God the son. What that means the divine nature of Jesus remained fully intact and never ceased to exist as the second member of the Trinity. So whatever separation, whatever abandonment occurred, there was no separation of the essence or the nature of God the Father and God the Son. Now we can say this, this verb for forsaken here that he uses, it's in the aorist tense in Greek, which which means it basically looks back to the time when he was in that darkness, Jesus is now emerging from that darkness on the cross. So as we established last time, this cry purposely comes at the end of the three hours of darkness. So it is safe to relate this cry from Jesus to what he was experiencing in the three hours of darkness. At this point, we can recall what we learned last time. If you weren't here, this was several weeks ago, but if you weren't here, you can download that message. But We discovered that during those three hours of darkness on the cross, that the darkness signified not God the Father's absence, but God the Father's presence. This was God showing up in the darkness, making his presence known like he did several times in the Old Testament through darkness. For what purpose is God showing up? This time it is not to voice his approval of the son. Rather, it is to treat his son as one rejected as he has made sin. The father is ratifying the new covenant through the sacrifice of his own firstborn, this time securing the blessing for us by pouring out on his son all of his holy wrath. This is what Jesus experienced in the darkness. And that's at the core of this cry from the cross. Again, it's wrong to say that the Father totally abandoned the Son on the cross and forsook Him in the sense of separating Himself from the Son. We often hear people saying that a holy God cannot bear to look upon sin and God has to turn His face away from sin. That's not quite true. God can't approve of evil. No, He he has to judge evil. But he, He sure does look upon it. God looks on evil all the time, and he judges it. Remember the flood? During the flood, it says the whole earth was filled with wickedness, and God looked upon it. He saw that man was evil everywhere. He, he, he set his gaze upon it. He didn't turn his face away. Rather, he made his wrath known, and the flood came. And so Christ's abandonment on the cross it was much worse than simply the Father fleeing his presence and leaving Jesus alone in the darkness. Rather, it was God the Father showing up and making his wrath known on the Son in the darkness. So it is better to say not simply that Jesus was separated from God on the cross, but rather Jesus was separated from God the Father's loving kindness on the cross as he moved under the Father's wrath. And that is a truly terrifying position, one which the son had never known. Yet on the cross, the son was deserted in that wrath. Jesus was fully given over to the wrath of God with no rescue. There would be no angel this time to to save him. There would be no reliance on his divine nature. Elijah wasn't coming to rescue him from the cross. Jesus was left to drink the cup of wrath, to the dregs. Now, I should point out, it's, it's very common these days for liberal theologians to challenge this idea that Jesus bore God's wrath on the cross. Is that really true? I mean, we say that, but does Scripture back it up? They say that idea doesn't fit a God who is love, so they redefine the atonement. But we just have one question. What does the Bible teach And the testimony is clear that, yes, Jesus was, in fact, bearing God's wrath toward our sin. And he did so to redeem us from the power and penalty of that sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him context of this verse is God reconciling us to himself through Christ. God, verse 17, made us new creatures. Verse 19, by not counting our trespasses against us. But you have to understand, God's divine justice can't just sweep our sins under the rug. And therefore, God laid our trespasses on the back of Christ. Someone has to pay. And God made his son to pay that we might go free. That verse, Second Corinthians 5:21. It's another staggering verse. The sinless Son of God, He knew no sin, yet somehow, in some meaningful way, He was made sin on our behalf. And that's another mystery that we cannot fully grasp. I mean, Adam and Eve—they they had this huge contrast. They went from perfect fellowship and sinlessness with God in the garden to a status of of sin and separation and death. We have never known the glories of Eden, so we we can't understand that, that contrast. But even Adam and Eve, they can't understand the contrast that Jesus went through. Here is God the Son, who in eternity past knew nothing but fellowship with God, the love of God. The perfect Son had never known the Father's wrath. All he knew was glory. But in the incarnation, Jesus became our sin bearer, and he carried our sins far away by taking them on himself. First John 4.10 says, And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And that word propitiation means to appease, to satisfy. In his death on the cross, Jesus was satisfying the demands of God's justice toward our sins. He was appeasing God's wrath toward us such that there's none left. Imagine this huge tidal wave barreling towards our coast, threatening to, to kill us all. I mean two hundred feet tall. We have no hope of survival. But then right before it strikes the ground, the earth just opens up and swallows the entire thing. There's not not a drop that comes onto dry land. That, that's what Jesus did. He propitiated that wrath of God. And there's, there's nothing left. That's what he did for us. Romans 5, 8 through 9. You want to talk about love, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And verse 9 says, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from, from what? We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. First Thessalonians 1.10 speaks of how we wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. See, we're not making it up. Although this reality is profound, Scripture, at the least, it's clear. Jesus died on the cross to rescue us from the wrath of God. And far from that being inconsistent with God's love, that it's actually the highest expression of God's love, that he loved us so much to give his son in our place. There's no h- love higher. We were spiritually dead. We were his enemies. We were cursed. But Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is he who hangs on a tree. That's another verse, basically preached a whole sermon on many weeks ago. We were enslaved to the curse of the law, which is death. But Jesus, in dying in our place, redeemed us. He purchased us back from that death. And then he gave us life. This was his mission from the beginning. Mark ten forty-five. for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve And to give his life as a ransom for many. So let's pull it together. What was Jesus experiencing in the darkness on the cross? And what was he expressing at the end of that time in this cry? It was not God the Father's absence, but his presence. God was present to judge, to curse to pour out the full weight of His wrath on the Son. And in this sense only may we speak of Jesus being abandoned by God, cast out into the darkness, made sin for us, given over to the wrath with no deliverance. And I believe this cry of Jesus was His expression of experiencing in that moment all of God's wrath and none of God's comfort. This was His soul reeling at being handed over fully into the wrath of God. Jesus did not physically descend into hell on the cross. That's not true. But in a sense, we can say that hell came to him. What is hell? Is it simply not the place in the existence where all of God's wrath is known for sin and none of his loving kindness is known? Yet is that not what Jesus experienced on the cross? Indeed it is, which is why many have labeled this outburst, the cry of the damned. The cry of the damned. God condemned his innocent son in your place that you, though justly condemned, might become innocent. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And that verse has nothing to do with money. But it does poetically capture the greatest exchange. Our sins went to Christ. His righteousness comes to us, all accomplished on the cross. What was that like for him? to become poor, to, to bear God's wrath. What more can we say without just speculating? We don't know. We will never fully know the full weight of anguish that beckoned this cry of the damned. But do you realize that's the gospel? Do you realize that the good news of the gospel means we'll never have to find out? I mean, sure, we're curious what was bearing the wrath of God like for Jesus on the cross. But isn't that something you'd rather not find out? Isn't that something you're happy you don't have to know? Weren't we just singing, we'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross? And that, That's a good thing. We're very happy about that. And this is the great news that because of what Jesus did for us, we'll never have to experience that wrath. It would have been ours eternally, In hell, justly, forever. But we will never so much as taste a drop of the wrath of God. Because Christ swallowed it all up. We've been fully delivered and there's, there's nothing left. So complete was his atonement. He drank it all down. And when it was finished, at this moment, he says right after this, what? It is finished. And so look, I'm completely fine with not knowing fully what Jesus went through on the cross. And I thank God that I will never fully know what elicited this cry of the damned. And so should you. And this fact alone should elicit supreme praise from you. We don't have to cry out of the damned. And because of that, we cry out praise and thanksgiving. Because now in him, you were poor, but you're rich. Do you see your sin? Do you really see your debt before a perfectly holy God? Do you understand, do you appreciate his wrath? I mean, do you want a God who looks approvingly on sin and evil? And we know many today, even many Christians are denying that the wrath of God, the demands of his divine justice, They wash his character away and replace it all with just love. But that actually cheapens the love of God. His love is supremely expressed in the sacrificial giving of his son into that wrath for us. Didn't we already read 1 John 4.10? In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then, of course, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. So this morning, do you believe that? And I pray you do. It's your only hope. Only by faith and trust in this one, Jesus, can you be saved from the wrath of to come you know we say that a lot right saved are you saved but even that word implies the presence of God's wrath what do you save from when you say I'm saved or is that person saved what, what do you save from saved from hell or saved from wrath but believe and be saved John 3:36 says he who believes in the Son has eternal life but he who does not obey the Son, Will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. For those here who have believed, we'll never taste God's wrath. But don't forget it. Don't ignore God's wrath. Don't pretend it's not there. Think about it. Think about it often. Think about how you will never know it. You will never know it firsthand because of what Christ did for you. He bellowed out that cry of the damned so you will never have to. And as you realize this, as you believe this, as the spirit of him is now alive in you, you will happily give your life over to serve him. So let's do that. Leave today with a renewed affection and a desire to lay down your life for the one who laid down his life for you. He gave the cry of the damned. We are now pleased to give a cry of praise and thanksgiving for the one who died for us. Let's do that. Let's pray. Lord God, we we want to proclaim and sing your praises now. Thank you, Lord, for for this text, for this truth, for Christ, your son, whom you gave out of the supreme love. You gave him over to death, you sent your own Son to the cross, God the Son. What that means, what that entailed, what Jesus experienced, we'll never fully know. We can't know. But we know what you revealed. He was rich and he became poor for our sakes that we might have spiritual riches, Lord. In him all the fullness of God dwells, yet he went to this death for us. He bore all of our sin. Not a drop is left. He cried out, it is finished, and all we now have is the victory. Lord, this is so undeserved. We were justly under your condemnation and your wrath, but now in him, as we believe, we are forgiven and redeemed. So we offer up our lives, our lips, our praise. All of us, Lord, we want to thank you and praise you now. May we leave renewed, reinvigorated with a sense of worship toward the one who gave himself for us. We give ourselves to you now.